Hello and welcome to another Ori Clark Audio Quick Guide, a straightforward conversation about a range of topics and issues commonly handled by Ori Clark experts and their clients. My name's Dominic Frisby and joining me today are Chartered Accountant, Chartered Tax Advisor and Partner at Ori Clark, Ian Phipps, as well as Corporate and Commercial Solicitor and also a partner at Ori Clark, Simon Walsh. And we'll start with you, Ian. Today's show is a Companies 101. And Ian, we're going to start with you. What is the best way to establish a business in the UK? Thanks, Dominic. Well, typically people establish a UK limited company. And actually that that is typically our advice is always that UK limited company is the best in most circumstances. I'll come on to some pros and cons of other things, but very easy to establish. It's very low cost. People are often surprised that you can do it without having to put any money in to start with, which is always a plus, because there's usually enough funds being spent elsewhere if you're establishing a business. You can basically do it with no UK directors um, and no UK shareholders. There doesn't have to be a UK presence or a UK person involved. It's very simple to do. Usually, companies house typically we used to be able to, we used to promise people do could do it in 2 hours unfortunately under the covid regime it now takes you know maybe 2 days but typically we're still getting things within 24 hours so it's very quick very simple very low cost the main benefit of it is it's limited liability um, which protects the shareholders and obviously the directors from personal liability provided there's no sort of criminal activity or negligence a uk company benefits from uh, low, our low corporation tax rate, which is currently 19, although as you've seen in the budget and from our excellent budget podcast, that it's going up to 25% in April 2023, but still relatively low amongst the G20. You've got access to very generous R&D tax credit regime in the UK, and also it's compatible with one of the key things for a lot of people establishing that we see establishing over here, which is enterprise investment scheme investments and um, small enterprise investment scheme if they're sort of micro-businesses. You can basically keep the management and ownership separate, and it can also be the basis for an innovator visa and um, skilled workers on ICT contracts. So there's, there's a lot of benefits, a lot of ease. The sort of negative bits are that if you've got losses, which is quite typically the situation when you start up early on, those are sort of ring-fenced within the company so that... Um, you know they they stay in the UK until until such time. Although you can use them against future profits, and there's information on the directors is publicly available, and information also you have to requ- um, disclose on persons of significant influence and control, which again we'll come on to a bit more detail later on as to as to who is that. But typically, it's people who control the business. You need to. It's a matter of public record who those people are. You have accounts filing obligations and other annual filing obligations, which again we'll cover. And there are statutory requirements for the um, format of the account. So we're, there's quite a lot of information that gets provided within those accounts, particularly for larger companies. And when you're getting into the sort of very large companies, there's you know a whole plethora of information. But that's no different from that they'd be experiencing typically in their home markets. It's bureaucratic in the sense that if you're an owner-manager of a business, you know you can't just take money out. It has to be by way of a dividend or by way of salary. Um, I know a lot of one-man band companies tend to sort of um, treat it as their personal bank, but obviously there is a sort of a, a, a legal veil between um, that individual and the company, which can have tax implications if, you, if you're not managing things carefully. So that is, that's your limited company. 
Let's talk now about limited liability partnerships, otherwise known as LLPs. Let's discuss some of the pros and cons of them. I'm old now, Dominic, so I remember when they first came in, it was quite a a sort of major thing. Um, Most partnerships had unlimited liability so that your partners could bind you and, you know, one partner does something wrong and you could all suffer. They were typically brought in, actually, to support the professional firms originally who have these massive partnerships with sort of, you know, 8,000 partners and couldn't possibly know what each of them are doing. But obviously that was brought in so that um, there could be a limited liability partnership, which meant that the partners were limited to the the assets within the firm and they wouldn't have to put their houses on the line or anything else. So those are quite good. And you can have two corporate partners. So quite often LLPs are used in property, for example, for property developments and joint venture arrangements. Are they as easy to set up as... as They are. They're They're relatively easy to set up. As easy as a limited company? It's as easy as, well, other than, it's not quite as easy as a limited company because you need at least two people. um, Yeah. By the definition, is the keys in the word partnership. It has to be at least more than one, whereas one one person can set up a company. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a bit more information that's provided. You're typically having a partnership agreement needed as well to manage the affairs, um, which, you know, it tends to be a bit more of a sort of, bespoke document than a typical set of articles. I've got you in the same way it takes, it's twice as much work to get two people to sign a document as it is one. (laughs) It is nevertheless... It's still relatively straightforward. I've got you. So let's look at some of the cons of LLPs. So the cons are, effectively, all the members have to file UK tax returns because an LLP is sort of tax transparent without wishing to sound too technical, but... So effectively, profits don't get captured within the LLP. They feed through into the partners themselves. And if the partner is not domiciled in the UK... Then it doesn't matter. If, if, the, if the income is arising in the UK, which it typically would be if you're establishing a business here, then those people would be taxed on their UK profits in the UK. So would have to file UK tax returns, which is again, is a bit of an, an added bureaucracy. It's less um, accessible to the R&D, Research and Development Tax Credits regime. And it can't be used for um, sort of business visa purposes, such as li- as a limited company can. I mean, I mean, th- what I would say with it is it can't be used as a representative of an overseas business visa, um, which is one of the issues. Although it can be used for innovator visas and skilled workers as for limited companies. Okay, so the next item I have here in my notes is UK establishment. Now, I thought that was something we were looking to overthrow. Uh, what, what, what is UK establishment? Oh, I definitely agree with that. Apart from, I remember it's a very good comedy club in the, in the 60s. Wasn't it? That's right. Yeah, it was yeah. um, Peter, Peter Cook. Cook's, yeah, yeah, Peter Cook. Yeah, all-time faves. Um, so a UK establishment is, is actually a permanent establishment. It used to be called, I mean, people used to know them as a branch, but that, that word was far too easy to understand and under, and uh, made sense to people, so we decided to change the tax you know, rule to permanent establishment. I, I notice your use of the collective we here. <laughs> I had nothing to do with it, and I want to make that clear. Yes, so that, nor did I. That's the same way that everyone, people writing for The Guardian always say, we need to do this. And I'm like, no, you need, <laughs> you to, need do to do that. that. I've got no interest in Indeed. it. Indeed. Very, very true. I suppose I'm, I'm thinking of we in the in the sense of the UK as opposed to... Uh, in the, as in the French would say, oh, oh. the French one. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, carry on. So, yeah. So, what that is, is actually equivalent of a branch. So, actually, that would be an overseas business would establish a, a branch of its own business within the UK without forming a separate vehicle. And actually, that is, I mean, we would say that's one of the things that we find most frustrating when people who don't really need to do that decide that's what they want to do. Because... It's A, it's bureaucratically a pain to, to actually establish one usually, particularly if they're coming from a non-English-speaking jurisdiction, because 
you have to basically translate all of the parent companies or the main company's constitutional documents. You need to give them sets of accounts. And every year you have to submit a set of accounts that, for the parent company so you're actually providing information to the public on your parent company, which the Americans definitely don't like doing. So there's a whole range of reasons not to do it. It's bureaucratic. It's you know very expensive just from an administrative point of view. In that respect, it's yeah. different to LLPs and limited oh, definitely, companies. definitely. Totally different. It's, so uh, you're, you're taxed on those UK profits still in the UK. The biggest problem with it is, you know, as I said that, but sometimes there are certain businesses where it's almost expected. I think we, we used to act a few years ago for an electricity generating business, massive global business, and they, they sort of were doing something in the UK and they, all, they almost had to be a branch because the people their counterparties were saying, well, we don't care if we're not going to do business with some, you know, new newly formed company we want you know this is there's so much money involved i see so if i was like an international chain of coffee shops for example i could open up the uk branch of that coffee shop maybe coffee shops isn't a yeah. good example but but i could open up the uk branch of that coffee shop thing or i could set up an individual uk company and yeah. call it the same thing yeah so and they would both end up selling coffee around right. the uk but there would be the, the branch version would be bureaucratically more complicated, but it would have a sort of established quality that, that existing banks and so on would rather deal with yes, than, um, than typically look, we'd look at, for example. Although typically in a banking relationship now, they'd look at the parent and ask for all sorts okay. of guarantees anyway. But I think the biggest problem with that, of course, is risk. And people set up, I mean, the key is in the phrase limited liability, which is a limited liability company, limited liability partnership that is you are limited. Whereas actually with a, a branch, you're, there's no ring fencing of risk. So if there was a disaster in the UK market or whichever market you're in, you're, you know, that is the parent company, the main company that's actually at risk because they're, they're dealing directly with that in that relationship. So there's no ring fencing of risk, which is the biggest reason, which I suppose is the same point as, you know, why people like to have those as counterparties because, you know, there's more assets to go mm. against. But that's the biggest con. And obviously they're, they will be taxed. Effectively, you know, you can't take advantage of the low corporation tax rate, assuming you know they're, they're, it's established in a jurisdiction that is, um, you know, higher tax than the UK. Um, one thing that actually one pro we didn't cover is obviously if there are losses again in early years, that's one of the reasons some people do it is that the, those losses are immediately offsettable because they are those par that parent company's losses. Okay, at this point, we bring in Simon into the conversation. Hello, Simon. Hi, Don. Company names. Yeah, it, it's one that we get asked lots of questions about, particularly for businesses that are new to the UK, so international companies expanding into the UK. And the key point to remember is that every company must have a registered name, and that registered name must comply with certain regulations. But in addition to a registered name, a company can also have a number of trading names, and the trading names are unregistered. Um, I'll talk a little bit about those in a minute. But coming back to the registered name, on the whole, there are few restrictions. Clearly, you cannot have offensive expressions unless they've been pre-approved by the registrar of companies. But one of the biggest issues we come across is that you cannot have a name that is the same as or similar to an existing 
existing name. So uh, we had a situation recently where uh, a company spent a huge amount of money with a branding agency in a, another country in the US, actually. They approved this name and then they decided to move into the UK and they discovered that they couldn't register that particular name because it was identical to a company that was already registered in the UK. So... Uh, Key thing is, if you're thinking of company names, the very good thing is that the Registrar of Companies has a name checker on its website, and it's pretty simple to type in your proposed name, and the name checker will tell you whether there is a strong possibility that you will be able to register your company name. So often uh, we advise clients just to tell us what the names are, and we'll check to make sure that they're available. If they're not available, if they're the same as or similar, it's, uh, you know, you, you, you tend to then get a little bit creative and that's where you can start to look at a trading name. So talking about trading names, a company, as I said, can have any number of trading names. Trading names themselves are not registered, uh, but if you are using a trading name, you do have a requirement to state both what your registered company name is and what your trading name is. So something to be aware of there. And the key with both registered company names and trading names is that you have to make sure that either your registered name or your trading name doesn't infringe somebody's existing trademarks. And that's uh, often an issue that we come across where uh, people register their company name because the name is available, but then they suddenly uh, find out that, uh, and generally when they get a, a nasty letter from a trademark attorney, uh, they find out that the actual name that they've registered is a name that belongs to somebody else. And so how would you stop that happening? So how you stop it happening is that when you're selecting a company name, you check that it's available for registration at company's house, and then we would do a check at the intellectual property office to see whether somebody has a trademark registered that is the same or similar. And if they don't, then green light, you can go ahead. Uh, if they do, that's when you might need to get a little bit creative as to what you call yourself. There was quite a famous example of this in the world of comedy a few years ago, where there was a chain of comedy clubs called the Glee Club. Uh, one in Birmingham, one in Cardiff. There's now one in Glasgow, one in Nottingham, one in Oxford. You know, a good established touring venue, good established touring club. And then Glee, the American TV series, came to the UK and the Glee Club said you are infringing our copyright, our trademark. And the Americans said, no, we're bigger and far more important than you. And it went to court and it went escalated up and up and up. But eventually the Glee Club won. Mm. And with the money they won, they were able to open up numerous other venues yeah, across really. the country. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, they won with Glee. Yeah. yeah. But um, once you have your registered company name, there is a requirement that information about the registered name needs to appear on certain publications, mostly letterhead and that type of thing. But the one area that a lot of our, um, we find a lot of foreign companies overlook is that when they move into the UK, they register a company, they forget to put their UK registered name and number on their website. And so it is a mandatory requirement that where you have a UK registered company and you weren't operating a website, even if that company is a subsidiary of a foreign entity, that you do need to include the UK registered name. It's very simple. It doesn't have to be on every page. You just either put it in the footer of the website or you have a contact us page that has a list of all of your international offices. But 
just important to ensure that the actual registered name, trading name, if you have one, and uh, the registered address and number are on the website. Do you know, by the way, little side thing for you, I know this from writing my book about tax, the only reason we have surnames they came about in order to differentiate people for the purposes of collecting poll taxes in the 13th and 14th centuries, 12th, 13th and 14th centuries. So you could separate John the Smith from John who lived by the hill from John Jack's son, and uh, that's why we have surnames. Hey, Prior to that, it was a, a luxury of, of the aristocrats. Anyway, right, so you've got your name, you've got your company, you've got various obligations, annual filings and things. Who wants to tell us about that? So we've got um, the annual accounts are a requirement, as we say, of, of limited liability status. It's one of the reasons that you get limited liability status because it gives you know creditors or people who are trading with you an opportunity to look at how you, you know how is financial health. They have to be produced every year. Um, what we find in anything we do, and the reason we sort of we, we always have a laugh and call these things quick guides, is that you, you, end, you could end up going down a, a sort of decision tree of you know lots of different complications for almost any aspect you talk about. So we're trying to keep it relatively simple. But in principle, you have to produce a set of accounts every year. They have to be filed within nine months of the year end. And basically, there's, a, there's certain statutory information that you have to provide. If companies are smaller, there is actually quite a lot of you know, information you don't need to provide. You don't need to give them a profit and loss account. You don't need to give, you know, certain details. You can just put a, a relatively simplified balance sheet on the, on you know, with a few minor notes. So typically for larger businesses where they're, you know, which are coming in, you know, there is still a lot of financial information you have to produce every year and file. And obviously those accounts also form the basis of your corporation tax return and, and tax liabilities. And, you um, the sort of tax rules pretty much follow the accounting rules. So if it's right in the accounts, you'll be taxed on those numbers pretty much. There's a, you know, a wealth of complications I won't go into, but it's just um, but just as a sort of overview. It's, it's interesting as well, Ian. I think they're talking about trying to simplify the number of filings that companies <laughs> have to do. So they are cynically. talking about <laughs> uh, if you submit your tax return, then you don't have to also then refile your accounts at company's house, where at the moment you need to do multiple things, which can drive most small business my, owners my, to distraction. My, I was going to say, my experience of HMRC is the word simplification yes, is Orwellian doublespeak. Absolutely. For complification. <laughs> but the other issue to bear in mind with company accounts, and I think it's one that a lot of our clients you know, um, don't, aren't aware of initially, is that there's quite strict audit requirements in the UK. And audit's the sort of big A word that everyone's scared of, you know, quite rightly, because it's you know full review of the accounts, it's expensive, it's bureaucratic, it has to be done, but... But if the company exceeds certain thresholds, or two out of three of these thresholds, then it needs an audit. Those accounts have to be audited formally by an external auditor, which we do um, for a lot of our clients. I've got you. Right. Tell us about the other filing requirements on the legal uh, side, Simon. Thank you, Dom. So, th so there are, on an annual basis, you do have to submit what is known as a confirmation statement to the Registrar of Companies. And this is effectively a statement to tell people that all of the information that is on the public record at Companies House is up to date. And it includes information about the directors, about the issued share capital. Now, interestingly, if there's been no change in the 12-month period over which the confirmation statement relates, then you still have to file the confirmation statement, but it just gets filed with no updates. I mean, just interestingly, what I find interesting, Simon, about the confirmation statement, you're just saying about it, 
is that you no longer have to show details of who the shareholders are, which on the old annual return, for those of us that are old would remember, which used yeah. to be the equivalent, you used to, every three years at least, you used to have to do a full list of shareholders for the business, which was a matter of public record. And actually, the, in, so in theory, they've now got these pe- persons of significant control, which is in theory the ultimate beneficial owner who's actually controlling this company, much more transparent, you know, is cutting away all these tax, you know, where people are sort of hidden in tax havens. In theory, what's bizarre is that this new form, which includes this person who's given, doesn't include any shareholding information whatsoever. And it just seems, so it's less transparent now than it was before yeah. the form was brought in, which I just find extraordinary, truthfully. Yeah. I mean, the time that there should be changes, if, if you've issued any share capital in the 12-month period, then you should have a full list of your shareholders. But, but you're right. Uh, the old annual return was a much more, in my view, transparent, transparent yeah. um, kind of form of filing. Just talking about persons with significant control, there is now this, uh, there's a requirement that the ultimate beneficial owners, uh, i.e. anyone who owns 25% or more of a UK company, has to appear on what we call the PSC register. And that also includes potentially a parent company. The rules are quite complex, but uh, interestingly, you often find that there are mistakes in the PSC register. And uh, just to help us professionals out, we now have an obligation to highlight <laughs> to the registrar of companies if we uh, identify mistakes in uh, in, in companies' uh, uh, PSC register. So, uh, uh, something to be aware of. The other thing, just to bear in mind, it's, you know, the key thing is control here. So, you know, so there's also, it's not just shareholdings in the sense of it is shareholdings, that's the obvious one. But if if someone's actually got control of a company because they've got some puppet shareholders or directors or whatever, but really the power behind the throne is somebody else. If they, if they can genuinely exercise control, how you would ever know that you know obviously this is the reality but if they can genuinely exercise control they are a person of significant control and should be on the register as noted with yes R- rarely do you see those sorts of arrangements and shareholders agreements <laughs> so you're true. right it's like yeah. you know if you you've agreed with a bunch of shareholders down at the pub that you'll vote in a certain way yeah and yeah it's in- interesting and then just a reminder you know, there are you know when you change your directors if a, if a new director is appointed or uh, a director's appointment is terminated then there's a requirement to ensure that the director's register is up to date and uh, there are filings in that respect as well At the end of each of these programs, we have some um, generic areas that we talk about, and these are a list of the biggest mistakes people make, the biggest cock-ups, and then the top three or four pieces of advice. And all of the cock-ups and the advice has already been covered uh, in the show. So what I'm going to do, because we are a slick, efficient machine, (laughs) is I, the ignorant person, am going to read out this list of cock-ups and advice as though it were a series of bullet points. So firstly, the three biggest cock-ups that people make in relation to setting up in the UK. The first one is, it is more costly to undo stuff than it is to do it right in the first place. So get it right early. Second biggest cock-up is thinking that a registered company name will act the same as a trademark protection. They are two very different things. Thirdly, usually it is easier to set up a company rather than a branch, even though companies for some reason always seem to want to set up branches rather than companies. And our top three pieces of advice are, once again, form a company, not a branch, 
Diarize important dates so you don't miss filing deadlines. And finally, check whether or not there is a registered trademark that matches the company name you wish to register. If there is, the chances are you will be required to change your name. What is the simplest piece of advice people should always remember? And that is Ian. Um, limited companies are very easy to incorporate and require no cash injection of share capital initially. So don't be hesitant. Just go ahead, form the company, get started and get doing business in the UK. This is something I don't understand. And we're going to end on this note. Yeah. A, a little <laughs> bit of frustration, which is that one of the reasons that Hong Kong was such a wonderful place to do business in the second half of the 20th century and why it, ex it, it enjoyed such extraordinary economic growth was that, firstly, it had a very simple uh, system of taxation that was fully transparent with very low levels of tax. And secondly, it was incredibly easy to set up a company. How is it that the UK can be so incredibly easy, emulates Hong Kong in the respect that it is so easy to set up a company, and yet we have this ridiculously complicated tax code. It's like we've learned half of Hong Kong's lesson and not the other half. I would agree 100%. I think it's, and I mean, it's becoming more bureaucratic in the sense of companies house used to just accept anything, you know, so, and it was frustrating for us as, you know, as advisors or account, when you'd seen something, you could see sets of accounts that you knew were completely rubbish, but you'd, you'd speak to companies house and they'd say, oh, it's not our, you know, we just have to accept it on faith, which was just bananas. You know? Yeah. I mean, it's what, you know, it's just. So you have some standards. <laughs> um, whereas, but, you know, but they would moan if you'd signed in blue ink, not black ink. You know, that was absolutely not allowed. So they've now changed relatively recently. I mean, I'd say in the last 12, 18 months that they do now sense check things in theory more. You know, as long as you're completing the forms correctly, giving all the information, then, you know, it's still there. But yeah, I agree with you 100%. Tax code is bonkers. Yeah, companies and that, are easy. And I think where <laughs> the registrar of companies is focusing its attention is on this PSC register. Um, and you know, we're seeing more and more clients asked to justify or provide evidence that so-and-so is a person of significant control. Ian Phipps, Simon Walsh, thank you very much. Thank you very much to you, dear listener, for listening. Um, we'll be back with another one of these Ori Clark audio quick guides very soon. If you want to find out more about anything we've been discussing in the show, you can find more information in the resource library section at oriclark.com. And if you can't find it there, email contact at oriclark.com and one of our experts will get back to you with all the information you require. Once again, thank you very much for listening and we'll be back with another Ori Clark audio quick guide very soon.